Hello everyone and welcome to this author chat and Q&A with Professor Caroline Larrington, the author of All Men Must Die, uh, Power and Passion in Game of Thrones. I had a few internet connection problems at the beginning of this event so I've recorded this introduction separately and afterwards we'll cut back to the video of the live event uh, after which point the connection has stabilised. So my name is Gabriel Schenk. I teach at Signum University's Faculty of Literature and Language, uh, which offers a master's degree program, including Germanic philology and fantasy literature. My co-host for this event uh, was Ashley Thomas, who is a graduate of the aforementioned master's program and a freelance writer who writes under the name The Nerdy Blogger and has contributed to such sites as fangirlish.com, Pop, popcultureretrorama.com and its podcast uh, as well as the Daily Debated podcast and she's covered the Game of Thrones TV series for those websites. And it is our great pleasure in introducing our uh, author for this author chat and Q&A, uh, Caroline Larrington who is Professor of Medieval European Literature and Official Fellow of St John's College at the University of Oxford. Uh, she primarily works on Old Norse, Icelandic and Arthurian literature, writing about romances composed in Old French, Middle High German, Italian and Old Icelandic Norwegian. Professor Caroline Larrington also works on medievalism and folklore, co-investigating an AHRC-funded research project, Modern Fairies and Loathly Ladies. Her books include The Woman's Companion to Mythology, King Arthur's Enchantresses, A Handbook to Eddic Poetry, The Norse Myths, A Guide to Viking and Scandinavian Gods, and Winter is Coming, The Medieval World of Game of Thrones, which was published in 2016, and her latest book, All Men Must Die, published this year. Uh, the second edition of her translation of the Poetic Edda was published in 2014 and features on the North Myths and Sagas course uh, at Signum. So um, any students in the audience who've taken that course will be familiar with um, that text. The format for this event is that it's going to be an open discussion, but we're going to be involving the audience as much as possible. Uh, we will talk about spoilers. Um, so just be warned about that. And now we're going to cut back to the video of the live event. Okay. So uh, something I, when when I am particularly interested in a, uh, a work uh, and I meet somebody else who's interested in the same work, I love to know how did you get into um, the particular work? So Caroline, if you could tell us, um, a little bit about how you got into Game of Thrones as both a fan and as an academic. Well, I first heard about Game of Thrones when the show started broadcasting 10 years ago. And I thought it sounded kind of interesting. And so I kind of meant to watch it, but then I realized it had started and I completely missed it. And I tuned into episode five, I think it was, of the first series. And there was Jamie and Cersei talking away very impassionedly somewhere in the in the throne room. And I had no idea what they were talking about. So I thought, okay, well, I just missed that completely. 
And then I heard that quite a lot of season two was being filmed in Iceland. And since I have a professional interest in Iceland, I thought, okay, I, I really do need to get across this. But then I happened to be on the plane going to the US in the spring of 2012 on my way to a conference. And my friend who was traveling with me fell asleep the minute the plane took off. And I was looking at, at the in-flight entertainment and I thought, oh, okay, Game of Thrones, right. Well, I'll give that a, a try. And so I started watching the, the first episode and within probably 20 minutes, by the time those direwolf pups had appeared on the screen, I thought, I am in. This I really like. This is ringing all the right kind of bells for me. And what was doing, it was partly the, the whole kind of northernness of, of the first part of the show, but also a real sense that the world building that had gone on in the show had been really well thought through. And so I watched the first three episodes back to back on the plane. I watched two more episodes on the, the plane on the way home. And then I got the box set of season one. So I watched all of season one without having read the books. So all of those kind of shocks and surprises in particular, um, what happens in the, the final episode just blew me away. And then in what I, I like to call the lost summer of 2012, I read all of the books and uh, that's all the books that there were then. And that obviously hasn't changed since then. And then after that, I watched all of the shows. Um, I watched season two, the moment the box set was available. And then I watched all of the shows as they were being broadcast. And it wasn't until 20... 14, I guess, that I was having lunch with my editor at IB Tourists, who originally published the books. And we were talking away about Game of Thrones. He'd read the books, but he hasn't seen the show. And I was talking exactly about how, how much I admired the work that George Martin had put into creating plausible medieval societies. And he said, well, you should write a book about it. And I said, well, I'm busy writing another book at the moment for you. And he said, yeah, yeah. Well, when you finish that book, you need to write about Game of Thrones. And I thought, mm, shall I, shan't I? But I was sitting on the train. So planes and trains play quite a major part in, in the inspiration here. I was sitting on the train um, in the summer of 2014. And I thought if I did do a book, what would it look like? And I literally on the back of an envelope wrote a plan. And I thought, yeah, OK, that could work. And I sent it in and it was commissioned. And so I wrote it pretty quickly over um, the summer of 2015. And it came out uh, late 2015, early 2016 in the States. And that was um, Winter is Coming was a book which was very much about the the history, the myth, the legend that actually formed a parallel to the world of Game of Thrones and the Song of Ice and Fire. It didn't say here are Martin's sources because Martin is very cagey about what he's actually read. Uh, but it just seemed to me with the kinds of medieval things that fed into the, that world. But of course, being published at, uh, at the end of 2015 meant I could only go as far as season five. So there was unfinished business, which I thought about and I was pretty sure that even before the final season was broadcast that I wanted to write about how the show functioned as a kind of story in itself 
And so I, I wrote a proposal for that and it got commissioned and I spent uh, mostly 2019 summer writing it and then it went into production last year. Fantastic. I'm going to try to come back on webcam, but if it goes again, just let me know. Okay, okay. we see and hear you. Okay, excellent. So far, so good. Um, thank you, um, Caroline, for the uh, for for that information. Um, it, one thing you talk about in the book is Dan Hassler Forrest's idea of skimmers, um, mm -hmm. dippers, and divers. So, a skimmer is someone who is familiar with a book or a fan or a show. They're a fan, but they're they're not that concerned with the details. They've watched it, and then a dipper sort of gets more immersed and um uh, uh but it is a bit more selective and then a diver is someone who's interested in everything mm. and you say you're more of a dipper because you're interested in certain aspects but you don't know you know the targaryen line going back four centuries and that kind of thing yeah i think that's that's a pretty useful distinction that that dan hasler forest makes there and you can see when i mean even donald trump and uh before him barack obama um barack obama clearly knows something about game of thrones and there's some reference that he makes in the, in one of his speeches to daenerys but when pressed he said oh, yeah, I, I haven't you know i know something about the show i've seen some of it but for the diehard fan, obviously, seeing some of it is nothing like enough. And I, I think I'm, I'm obviously going to read the rest of the books when Martin ever gets around to finishing them. But I haven't read Duncan Egg and I haven't read uh, uh, Fire and Blood because I'm not sure that I'm that interested in the entire history of the known world. But that might change because I have kind of noticed myself becoming interested in the stories coming out about um, the first prequel, mm -hmm. which is now being cast and it's going to go into production as soon as it's possible. And I have been on quite a few Game of Thrones location tours. So, and I, I've, now that the book has come out, do I want to go on any more? I don't know. I think I, I probably would if I found myself in Dubrovnik. So I am quite selective in my interest in in the show and i really don't care about things like the second blackfire rebellion uh, so i would be hopeless going on mastermind or some kind of quiz show and asking answering questions on on the world of game of thrones but the things that i'm interested in i am really very interested in uh, gabriel and i were discussing um where we landed um the other day and Gabriel I believe you described yourself as more of a skimmer Gabriel's frozen again oh no um while we're waiting for him to come back I am somewhere in between a dipper and a diver uh-huh um, because I, I have read fire and blood uh the world of ice and fire and I have read all the dunk and egg stories uh in fact the uh, uh the first dunk and egg story was my introduction to a song of ice and fire um, right yeah and i i'm i'm particularly interested in dunk and egg because uh duncan is reportedly according to martin one of brian of tarth's ancestors um thus you know she's my favorite character in all of fiction so i, I was, uh -huh. so i've got i've got to dive into that um but i, I 
reading those um, works actually, I felt like enhanced uh, my enjoyment of uh, the television series. Uh, just for nothing else than noticing background details. Um, things mm. like um, when um, John and Sansa take back Winterfell and um, the, the Stark banner that's dropped is actually the uh, inversion of the Stark colors, which is the, uh, the bastard banner. Um, things like that that are not mentioned in the show at all, but are things that you would uh, pick up on by reading those um, additional works. And I, I personally, I find that really interesting. Mm -hmm. I can see that um, that you can get quite a lot out of of reading the kind of penumbra of books and in particular getting a sense of the history can deepen the experience of probably of going on to to see the prequels maybe uh, rather than making and, and actually to rethink I guess some scenes in the show as well but I don't know how many people are minded to revisit the show over and over again um, I found myself on subsequent plane journeys occasionally going, you know what, I think I'll just watch this one episode that's still available on um, the in-flight entertainment. So I've seen the Battle of the Bastards several times because I find that absolutely fascinating episode. But there are some episodes I, I can't imagine myself ever bothering to watch again. Right. So um, then the next question we had on here for you, uh, Caroline, um, has the show increased uh, an academic focus on the books or um, has it decreased the amount of scholarship because a Game of Thrones has become more of a pop culture thing? I, I kind of ask this in the um, in, in reference to something Harold Bloom said about Harry Potter several years ago that Harry Potter could not be considered serious literature because it was too popular. So has the Game of Thrones TV series had this kind of effect on academic scholarship surrounding the books or the show? I don't think so. I think what's happened in the last 10 years, and it's, it's kind of astonishing in some ways to think it has been a 10-year journey from the beginning of the show, is that where maybe at the beginning, um, the kind of real diehard scholars of popular culture, media scholars, dived into the show and going, whoa, this is interesting, what's happening here? And the, the fans of the show who are also medieval scholars thought, this is kind of like a new Tolkien, not, not just in terms of having this huge legendarium that's that's developing around the the show and the prequels and so on um, but it's a kind of gateway drug to getting students in particular interested in medieval culture of various kinds that four or five years ago when I was teaching Beowulf it was quite helpful to say so you know the thing about Drogon and you know, how difficult dragons are to control and how difficult it is to defend yourself against a dragon. Well, you can see why Beowulf feels he has to go and attack the dragon at, uh, at the end of the poem. He can't just try and learn to live with it. And so seeing the show as a way into getting people interested in medieval studies is something that I think has grown quite a bit over the last 10 years. But at the same time, 
now I think it's not just the kind of media studies people and the, the popular medievalist people, but medievalismists more generally are saying, yes, it brings people into medieval culture, but actually it's a really, really interesting phenomenon in its own right. And one of the things that fascinated me when I was doing some research for the latest book was finding out just how many countries, 207 countries across the world, the show has been broadcast in, 187, I think it is, on simulcast, which meant that a, a sizable proportion of the audience there were getting up at some ungodly hour of the morning. In the UK, people were watching it at two o'clock in the morning in order to, to be there when it happened. So they, they didn't have to put up with um, spoilers on social media. And I, I know of no other show that's had that kind of impact. And so I think that's something which has really given people license to say, this is something, I'm sorry, Harold Bloom, but this is something we have to take really seriously across all kinds of areas of um, popular culture and thinking about the way, I think particularly the way that narrative works. The, the thing that everybody likes about Game of Thrones is the story. Uh, there are people who love the battles, there are people who love the, um, the cinematography, there are people who love the dialogue, they love individual characters, but it's the combination of those story arcs, I think, which is what keeps people watching in those 207 countries, because everybody recognizes something of their own lives, their own cultures in it. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the kind of relationship that Game of Thrones has with um, wider scholarship and medievalist uh, medievalism and medieval works um which is you go into detail in winter is coming uh, we have a question about that actually from the audience mark asks considering quote cripples bastards and broken things which is how Tyrion describes the people he um has affinity with in the show how do you see game of thrones fitting into the finnish myth stories such as the calervo in calavella uh, how do I think it connects? I haven't really thought across um, into making a direct comparison with the stories of the Kalevala. Um, but clearly there are some of the same themes there, particularly, um, and actually, Mark, that's a great question because now you've put it, I'm thinking of all kinds of connections. Um, so that's there's not only the incest story that we have in in Colero, um, which works out not only, I mean, it's kind of licit and foregrounded in the case of Jamie and Cersei, that that kind of incest is, is something we're almost encouraged to sympathise with. But then the absolute block that to a happy ending that's caused by the relationship between the blood relationship in the end between Daenerys and Jon. And however much Targaryens might be relaxed about incest, Starks are not. And the, the kind of horror of discovering that blood relationship just does for, for John's feelings for Daenerys in that respect. Even mm -hmm. if he just keeps saying, you will always be my queen, but you're not going to be my lover anymore. 
And you can see exactly how that incest horror works in, in the story of Colero as well. And also thinking, um, it's a long time since I've read the, the Kalevala, um, but the last time I was reading it, I was looking in particular at stories of rivalry between brothers, brothers who really hate each other. Um, and you have that exactly with the, the hound and the mountain. And indeed, it's at some level with, with Stannis and Renly as well. But that's politically motivated in a way that the, the hatred between um, Sandor and Gregor is just absolutely at the level of gut. And then there's that question too about journeying into the land of death, going um, the death of Lemminkainen, his mother going to see if he can, uh, if she can find him and bring him back again, and and the kind of slightly arbitrary, no, actually very arbitrary, rules in the Game of Thrones universe as to when the Red God is going to exercise his power to resurrect people and when he isn't. How does that work? And how do we square it with, with Martin's claim that he doesn't believe that there is any transcendental God in the universe that he's created, nor indeed in our universe. But nevertheless, he gives that really crucial uh, power of resurrection to one particular figure and kind of leaves it. And to my mind, it's it's a bit dangerous to to have something as powerful as resurrection and leave it sort of unexplained mm -hmm. or sort of arbitrary. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe that maybe it makes the mystery of the whole thing more powerful. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's a load of connections with the Kalevala, which I suspect have not got anything at all to do with Martin or Benioff and Weiss actually ever reading the Kalevala. Um, but rather these kind of um, inherent mythological themes that fantasy taps into. Mm -hmm. And just on, on that point about um, the, again, to quote the show, Cripples, Bastards and Broken Things, um, and, and you, you touch on this in the book, that the show uh, focuses on them in a way that other fantasy hasn't. Um, it hasn't really kind of had so many of them um, I mean, there are examples, you know, Mordred being the bastard son of King Arthur, um, Steerpike uh, being described mm. as malformed in Gormenghast, um, Frodo being broken in the sense by the Nazgul blade, although he seems pretty much okay until the end. It's just, it's, it's just that he's not completely healed. Um, so it's not quite the same as, you know, Bran, for example, um, uh, being confined, uh, being having his mobility so impaired. Um, Arya going blind, um, Hordor, you know, with his his um, mental impediment. Um, you've talked about how kind of the good ways and the bad ways that the show has presented women. What about, uh, and, and also people of color, what about the kind of um, people with disability or with people with mental illness and things like that? How do you think the show has managed those? I think the the show has done pretty well there in some ways, and I think it comes from Martin's own interest in um, what he too um, flags up as crippled sparses and broken things in some of his interviews, that they're the people who, in traditional epic, let's say, are always marginalised. If somebody becomes mm. disabled or they have some kind of... Um, 
inherent disability, it's because they're evil or it's a condign punishment for the wickedness that they've they've uh, been guilty of at some point. And the idea that you can be disabled and a hero Mm-hmm. And the, the story is not about your overcoming your disability, but accommodating to it, learning to live with it, um, maybe making a plus point out of it. But these are, these are not kind of the stories of, of bravely overcoming that adversity. And that's what I think really stands out about the writing of those particular characters. If we just think of the, the small council scene at the end, mm. um, which has many unsatisfactory elements and many unanswered questions, I think it would be fair to say. Um, But there you are, you've got the fat guy who can't fight, as Martin calls him. You've got Brienne there, captain of the Kingsguard. You've got uh, the son of a crabber in the form of Sir Davos. You've got a dwarf. You've got the guy in the wheelchair is the king. Um, You've got a whole conspectus of people who who don't look like epic hero winners. And I think there's something quite impressive about the way both the show and the books handle that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and different, as you say. Yeah. Mm. Um, Ashley, um, over to you. So um, there are a lot of different things that we could talk about within the series, but um, I, I hear that you are a big Jamie Lannister fan. Caroline, is it true? Yeah, I, I love Jamie. I, yes. I, um, and and because I I I personally just have a very vested interest in how Brienne and Jamie are going to play out in the books. And I, you know, to be mm. perfectly honest, I was extremely disappointed with what happened in the show. Um, can you tell me how you feel about uh, Brienne and Jamie? Well, I I have pretty mixed feelings about Brienne and Jamie in that that final season because. I thought some of the best writing in season eight and maybe one of the most powerful scenes in in the whole of the season was the scene where Jamie knights Brienne. I I found that really moving. I've watched that over a few times and I just kind of clasp my hands and go, yes, yes, oh, last she's got what she wanted. And, And then I felt it was part of that kind of speeding up towards the end that what a storyline which I think actually is better left in that kind of unresolved they really really love each other but it's not sexual or it could be sexual but it never is it's always unresolved that kind of tension between them Um, that that would have been better left rather than having them fall into bed with each other on this kind of slightly dubious premise that Brienne was in some way embarrassed about her virginity and Jamie sort of kindly decides to help her out of it as it were. I mean, that's not all that was at play in the scene. And that all looks lovely. And then he's off on his horse again, heading back to Cersei and King's Landing within another half an episode. And if there'd been more time, I think that could have worked out much more interestingly. But as it was, it was just one of those kind of um, wasted opportunities of which we have quite a few in in the last season. Yeah, I'm interested interested to see what, if anything, Martin does with it. I think he's probably wise enough to leave it well alone. 
<laughs> I, I mean, I, I know I personally have my, uh, my own hopes and dreams for such things because I ship them so hard. Um, but, uh, I, I, I appreciate your ability to really, um, differentiate between things with the show versus things with the books. I, I, I came to, um, you know, uh, the world of Westeros in 2006. So I, I've been invested in mm -hmm. the story, uh, like the book story for, you know, 15 years now. Um, and then, so I, I, that my expectations are more book driven. And I, it, for me, the, the challenge is I, I have difficulty differentiating between how I read um, and doing like a close reading of the of the books and how I see their character arcs being inverse and parallel. Um, and then there's a certain mm. point in the books where I feel like they they're they're just about on the same page. And if they split, then we're gonna have something like what happened in the show. And I don't think that's what's going to happen. But I, I appreciate your ability to differentiate between the two. I I'm too emotionally invested to be able to do that, unfortunately. <laughs> Well, I think you do have to stand back in a way um, if you're trying to write a book about a phenomenon like Game of Thrones and not just go in a kind of you know, fan website way. It's all lovely. I just think it's, it's just great. Um, but also, there's no point in getting cross with the showrunners about the decisions that they made for you know, all kinds of good reasons when you you read the press around what they say you can see actually maybe filming the dawn scenes was really really difficult that uh, getting mm. access to the alhambra was something they got as a kind of one-off and then the authorities said no you can't film there anymore and suddenly that feeds into the problems that the dawn storyline was also throwing up with the fan community too so i think it's it's something that a kind of academic approach can can do is to say i love this story so much but i'm also going to stand back and look at it critically and go that's where the problems were and that's how they might have solved them but they didn't and i mm -hmm. think that what I, I call in the book the race to the finish threw up a lot of problems mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think, uh, you know, kind of on that related point, uh, there was a lot of strong feeling about Daenerys in season eight. And I think mm. you do a really great job in this book of looking at her story objectively and as a whole, not just, you know, those last few episodes as well. Um, and sort of arguing, I think, very convincingly that there is more foregrounding than people give the show credit for and then it's not just this kind of mad woman you know suddenly she goes mad and kills everyone kind of thing mm -hmm. um but you i don't know if there was a failure to communicate that well enough although T Tyrion sort of tries to do it in his, one of his speeches to sort of make that case that you know this hasn't come out of nowhere um so it is a kind of info dump at that point i think yeah. isn't it um because what was very interesting thinking back over Daenerys's story arc when we saw where it ended was the ways in which 
the the very real concern in the fan community about the kind of white savior complex that the show seemed to be investing Daenerys in, uh, particularly that kind of um, infamous scene at the end of season three. Is it season three? Yeah, it is uh, three ten. I think Misa, where mm -hmm. all those brown skinned extras are, are carrying this white woman out of the city gates and, and calling her mother, and she saved them. Thank God, at last, you know, uh, Western liberalism has come along to this benighted part of the world. And um, everybody, many, many commentators are really concerned about that. But you can kind of see that already, I think, the showrunners are also concerned about the optics of that. And the idea that it's okay to have a white savior, or maybe it's a bit problematic. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it becomes much more problematic when the white savior starts developing a huge messiah complex. Mm -hmm. And then decides she's going to destroy everybody who doesn't agree with her. That, as she says to John, they don't get to choose. Uh, I thought that that was pretty well done, particularly since it wasn't just about her going mad, but you could see the various pressures that were converging on Daenerys in season eight: the the loss of the relationship with John the uneasiness about what Tyrion and Varys were up to behind the scenes in terms of thinking John was a preferential candidate. And just seeing the way that John interacted with his sisters, what it, it felt like to be part of a family who you could love and you could trust as against her own appalling experience of, of sibling relationship with um, the not very much regretted Viserys. Um, and so I, I think you could see all of those things coming together with Daenerys. So it didn't just look as if she suddenly went, whoa, I've just gone <laughs> mad. But yeah. the, the final straw was obviously the, the death of Missande, I think. And I thought mm -hmm. that was, although there was great outcry that one of the major characters of colour got a head cut off at that point. Um, nevertheless, Missande was just about the only person who loved Daenerys for herself at that point and who mm -hmm. Daenerys loved too, without fear or favour, as it were. And you could see how all of those pressures came together in Daenerys. And mm -hmm. so I was not as horrified uh, by Daenerys's ending as, as many people were, because I thought the work had been put in in the storytelling in the show to make that plausible. Right, yeah. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear from audience members as well whether how kind of where they fitted in, into that. Um, um, but uh, yeah, uh, Ashley, um, over to you. Um, so, uh, how do you feel um, about how the show handled the Night King? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it just a uh, conversation Gabriel and I had like when when I was watching Game of Thrones season eight I uh some friends of mine threw a watch party um there were like 14 of us crammed in a living room we're all like on the edge of our seats with um you know the this big battle and and when Arya kills the Night King we we all scream in delight and it's exciting and we all cheer and then I get mm -hmm. home and I think about it and I was like well that was like very emotionally satisfying and very visually cool to watch but you need to explain to me how Arya is Azor High 
Um, (laughs) Because, uh, you know, so far we've been set up to think maybe it's John, maybe it's Daenerys, but never Arya. Um, So, you know, to me that diminished, um, you know, his defeat. And I felt like maybe in some way we got a little more development for somebody like Ramsay Snow than we did the Night King, who's the big bad of the series. So um, what do you you think about that? Yeah, I think it's true that we got, and again, you know, Martin provided a lot of backstory for Ramsey, so we could we could see exactly what made him into the psychopath that he was, and um, and there are even moments where you think, oh, yeah, maybe Ramsey's not so bad. I mean, not very many of them, obviously, and and that uh, goes downhill pretty quickly. But yeah, um, I was I had exactly the same experience, I think, with Arya's um, victory over the Night King. That I was delighted that the little girl got to do this. And and there was a big outcry on social media I could see because um, I didn't manage to watch that particular episode till um, later that afternoon. And I was going, why is Arya trending? Well, what's going on here? Hmm. Well, we'll find out. And so I was, I was kind of pleased by that. But at the same time, exactly as you suggest, I was thinking, but this actually makes very little kind of mythological sense because the the built-in assumptions that we have, and that this is not to say that Martin and following him, the showrunners don't delight in dismantling some of the assumptions that we do have about how stories work. But it really should have been John, and it really should have been a proper Valyrian sword. Um, maybe um, John's own, what is it, long claw, maybe even ice. Um, but although that Valyrian dagger had been kind of going below the surface ever since season one, it wasn't the great mythic weapon. Um, as or as high had as a prophecy, like a load of other prophecies in the show, has just completely kind of evaporated. And um, we never found out what that was about at all. And it's if it wasn't going to be the power of fire destroying the power of ice, which it seemed to me in a larger mythological context, it should have been those, the the two dragons should have knocked each other out and Drogon should have done for the Night King or John should have done for the Night King because he was the, the lost prince. He was emerging as the hero, the one who came back from death in order to save humanity. And so it did kind of make some sense of what it was that Arya was doing in Bravos, why she was getting that training from the the um, the faceless men. Didn't answer the question, which I've always been worried about, as to why Jack and Hagar picked her up in the first place. Was he sent to get her by some power, or did he just bump into her? Was that a coincidence? Um, and it it looked to me a little bit as if the explanations for Arya's victory over the Night King were sort of retrofitted and didn't work as satisfactorily in the larger scale of things as either John, preferably I think John, or Daenerys having had the victory over him. And I also just want to know more about the Night King story as well. What happened between Leif um, turning him into 
the proto Night King with that um, dragon glass dagger back in what, season six, I guess it was. And uh, why did he turn so bad? I suggest that it's kind of Frankenstein's monster motif that um, you have unintended consequences of these um, these actions that somehow contravene the boundaries between life and death. But I really want to know what the Night King's problem was. Yeah, I, th I think that's a wonderful question. And, you know, unfortunately, we don't have answers for that within the show or the books. Um, I, I've had those same questions myself. Um, but yeah, I think that's really, uh, it's really fascinating. Maybe uh, Martin will tell us where the Night King comes from. And uh, I'm, I'm assuming that Martin has actually um, given his blessing to the origin story that we have for the Night King. Maybe it's all going to emerge at some point. Uh, but yeah, I, I really wondered what it was that the Night King and, and his cohorts, what was their actual goal? Um, what was it? Could I asked myself, could John have negotiated with the Night King at some point, make them just go go back to the lands of always winter with uh, something that would keep them happy? Like, I don't know, a Netflix subscription or something. Is, <laughs> would that, is that what it would have taken? Um, and, and Brand's suggestion that the Night King has always been just in the business of trying to hunt down the three-eyed ravens seemed to me to be a bit kind of aggrandizing. I know that Bran did work as as bait, kind of, in in the Battle of Winterfell, and sure enough, that was where the Night King headed for. But this kind of oh, he wants to erase me. I'm the world's memories. Struck me as a bit phony. Right, right. Uh, and I'm going to try and come on again on using my phone. Uh, can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Excellent. Okay. Well, we'll stick to this. Um, uh, so, uh, just kind of unrelated to that, but uh, something else I'm curious about is the um, the way that Game of Thrones has been used as a cultural reference point, and and you talk about this in the book a bit. Uh, so, you Trump is one example, Rudy Giuliani, Michael Gove. Um, I had a, my own experience of this was in London when I was at the anti-Brexit march, and uh, everyone was having a good time, and the sun was shining. And we were walking past 10 Downing Street and people started chanting, shame, shame, shame. Oh, really? Uh -huh. Just after Cersei's Walk of Atonement. And it was a really weird moment when I felt I'm one of the small folk now and I'm besieging the, the Red Keep or something. Um, so it, I'm not sure it's just a kind of reference. It seems like Game of Thrones has actually been informing some of our ideas about power and, and the way we think of power in you know modern the modern world yeah um and i think that's something that fantasy epic does generally if it if it works very well that it's not simply about this invented world but it it reaches outside itself always to talk to what's going on in the present and one of the things that struck me most in hindsight, I guess, thinking about Cersei's consistent lack of any sort of concern for her citizens, um, differently from 
Robert, who just benignly neglected them. Um, differently from Joffrey, who was really afraid of them, and differently from Tommen, who actually did care about them a little bit. Um, the way that Cersei, and then in in response to that, Daenerys as well just said, the little people can go hang, mm -hmm. struck me as really um, resonating with figures like Bolsonaro in Brazil, the idea that it doesn't really matter what happens to everybody else, that you can just be in denial about a situation and say, COVID is not a big deal. It's it's just like flu. It's going to be fine. And Cersei going, well, let her come. Let her come and burn the place down. It doesn't matter. Um, mm. So I think the, the way in which the strong man, with or without a messiah complex, the the detachment of the leader from the the ordinary people was something that is both very recognizable in our own world and very much in play in the, the show itself. Mm -hmm. As well as these kind of large questions that people are asking a lot when the White Walkers first emerged in season three, season four, which was what do they represent? Are they, as they, they seem like they could be at some point, are they figures of climate change? that mm -hmm. instead of that their global warming turned on its head so that they become um a symbol of catastrophic climate change even if it's in the direction of coldness rather than overheating and that seemed to me quite interesting though i think it's always um important to remember that when martin started writing the books what was on everybody's minds in the late 80s was nuclear winter when we were still thinking about um, the threat of the Cold War, about um, nuclear weapons and, and mutually assured destruction, there was the idea that a nuclear war would bring something like a long winter, which really informed uh, Martin's generation to, to some extent. That was the fear that people had. And the idea of the wall, which he always refers to Hadrian's Wall, but of course, again, when he was writing, the Berlin Wall had only just come down. And that was the wall which seemed to me to be more significant in, in his thinking, a wall that keeps people who are very, very similar to one another apart. And you can see the way that, that Trump kind of took up the idea of the wall, I think, without really understanding the way in which it resonated in the show as just a wall is a good thing. We will have a wall. Yeah, yeah. And so similar to Giuliani with the kind of uh, trial by combat, just sort of saying the words without necessarily thinking about those implications. I um, think he could be a bit of a skimmer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Definitely not a death or a diver. Um, yeah, it's one of the questions you ask at the beginning of this book is why is Game of Thrones so popular, especially around the world. And in a way, the whole book is an answer to that question because, mm. you know, it's it's universal. It's about these, these integral things, power and passion. Um, but what one of the possible answers which, which you suggest, um, or which, which you say others have suggested, is that it's just escapism, that, you know, there is a something nice about escaping into another world. And I've never found that with Game of Thrones. Uh, it's, it's, Mm. Never felt like that. In fact, during season eight, I had to keep on pausing it 
and reading BBC News. I had to escape from fantasy into reality. Uh, so it was the other way around. Um, and it does seem to have that kind of much stronger link to uh, reality than other fantasy does. But, uh, but actually all fantasy uh, does have something, something like this. Yeah. Um, I think I think it's right that it's not purely escapist, uh, but it's not an allegory either, and that's quite important. Mm -hmm. This is this is not uh, Game of Thrones as a or or Westeros as a kind of anti-Narnia, um, yeah. perish the thought. Um, <laughs> but it it picks up, as I argue, these very universal themes about power and passion. And particularly, I think, um, and I think this is what kind of really underlies its appeal, is its analysis of the family. Uh, because everybody has a family wherever they are in the world. And even if you have slightly different structures of, of family organization, nevertheless, people who are watching the show can see how the older generation tries to mould the younger generation to fulfil the the hopes and dreams that they had, but maybe didn't get to fulfil, and mm -hmm. maybe how the next generation sees how those mistakes were made, but they try and reproduce them themselves, and how the youngest generation, the ones where our heroes are, are drawn from, um, with the exception of Tyrion, I think is slightly out of time. Um, in comparison with the the people who are really just children when the the show starts, how they forge completely different paths for themselves, which takes them away from having to identify with the idea of what their house represents, with what their parents or their grandparents want them to do, and how that works out successfully or not in in various cases. We can see how how those kind of conflicting ideologies of, of family and house completely destroy Theon um, mm -hmm. until he has his, his great redemptive and pointless death at the end of the show. But that allows him to be kind of um, assimilated into House Stark in death, even if, he, if it wasn't really possible in life. And so I think um, one of the arguments that I make in the book and was something that struck me very strongly when I, I came to think about family in Game of Thrones is the way the family gets so dismantled and how we end up actually with no families to speak of. The mm. most powerful, powerfully emotionally attached family, the Starks, have all gone off in different directions. Um, nobody's got married. Nobody looks like they're going to get married. Um, there are no children apart from um, little Sam and uh, putative baby John. So Sam and Gilly have a, a little family going, but they're way off screen and we don't even know where Gilly's got to. And uh, everybody else has um, given up the idea of procreating for a future. Mm -hmm. um, Tyrion's come up with the idea of having an elective kingship, which is not going to solve any of the kind of inter-house rivalry problems that uh, have beset Westeros so far. But I think that's a really interesting and in some ways kind of um, anti-American take that the show has ended up with. The, the American shows tend to like the idea of family very much and see it as, yes, as a place that's constricting, but it's a place that you can always come back to. And the end of one of these um, 
stories of individual maturation is growing up, starting a new family, making sure there's some kind of, of continuity. And the show refuses that. I'm, I'm not sure Martin is going to refuse it in quite the same way because he's really invested in the idea of dynasty. But mm -hmm. the show has just kind of closed the door on on any real um, continuation of the story where we are now, unless we all follow Aria off to discover America. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're coming towards the end of our time, but Ashley, I know you wanted to ask uh, a question about the way that fans have engaged with Game of Thrones. Um, I did make you a presenter in case you wanted to share your screen and show some of the, the photographs. Otherwise, we can put them back in the edit. I'm not going to risk showing my screen okay. because it will blow up my internet connection. Yeah. Well, let's let's see uh, let's see if um, this will work. Um, so can and, and we should say. There's some beautiful photographs in the in the book of you sort of on the Iron Throne and meeting the direwolves and things like that, as well as the locations as well. Yeah, it's impossible to get uh, HBO to give permission to illustrate a book like this with scenes from the actual show. So I decided quite early to go with locations or kind of related um, photographs. And I was I was lucky to have friends traveling to various locations, ones I didn't go to, who could take some great pictures for me of uh, Dubrovnik and of, of the South Sahara. Wow, yeah. So actually, you, you have some photos of you meeting um, uh, various actors. Uh, we can't see your screen at the moment, so perhaps um, the yeah. tech is just not, just not working for us tonight, which Same. does happen. Yeah, yeah. The, the tech does not seem to want to cooperate. Um, but uh, have you met Jamie? I, I have. I have. Um, in oh. fact, um, I met him uh, July 2019 at Con of Thrones in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh -huh. uh, and um, he knighted me while I was dressed as Brienne of Tarth. Um, oh, so wow. He was, a, he was a very sweet man. Um, and, and uh, for full disclosure, for those who have not met me in person, I am five foot three. Gwendolyn Christie is six foot three. Um, so I, I, I dubbed myself that weekend fun size Brienne of Tarth. <laughs> <laughs> but I was very nervous before meeting him. I rounded the corner where they had him like, you know, kind of this isolated area for, for photo ops. And uh, he saw me and he threw his arms up in the air and he said, it's perfect. And I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> you <are so> <laughs> that makes everything worthwhile. Um, yeah, but he he was a he was a very sweet guy, um, and I'm very sad that the tech is not cooperating, so I could share these photos. But uh, Gabriel, I hope we can put these in in the edit. Um, yeah, and we'll, we'll send them to you as well, Caroline, so you can. Oh see yeah, them I, I really photos. need to see that. <laughs> the only actor yeah. I've met in the whole show is the mountain. Oh, uh, Thor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was uh, kind of predictably at uh, baggage reclaim at the. Uh, uh airport in iceland when i was on my way there for, um in one of my trips oh it's actually in, in 20 no it was 2018 uh it was just before the just around the time that the show had been broadcast yeah so actually it was may 2018 i think so um 
we reckon well obviously he's hugely recognizable oh no i i saw oh, it no, I yeah it. okay okay so uh so there there i am meeting uh nikolai coster waldau um he was like i said very sweet guy um but uh perhaps something that was very life-changing for me uh was meeting gwendolyn christie um can that everybody is a size difference yeah yes um uh karita alexander who's a staff person here at signum uh, dubbed this picture. I feel like I'm looking at Ashley and Dyer Ashley. Um, <laughs> made me laugh for about 15 minutes. So I, I feel very complimented. Anyway, Gwen was wonderful. Um, she is such a sweetheart. It took time to talk with everyone um, and spent a lot of time um, just. Oh, you get your own iron throne too. Yes. And so there, there's me in full Brian of Tarth cosplay sitting upon the Iron Throne. Um, so um, it's unfortunate that I can't get my webcam to work uh, because I do have my Brienne of Tarth armor up on a mannequin in my background. So you, you all could see it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, th this, uh, this picture was also taken at um, Con of Thrones in July 2019. So, um, so th this is one of the ways that I engage in fan culture um, with um, cosplay and I, I'm, I'm a very much an amateur cosplayer. I have good friends that are, I mean, they could be professional costumers for just the amount of skill they have and just things they've done just for fun on their own. And they've they've done Cersei, um, Littlefinger, uh, another friend has done uh, Daenerys. Um, so it's just, it's for me, this is, this is kind of like a nice hybrid between like, um, I, I love wearing costumes, so you know this is a, this is a fun thing for me. But also, um, if I had not studied literature, I would have studied uh, theater or film. Um, uh -huh. And so for for me, this is the way I like to engage. But I know um, what what are some ways that you you personally find interesting of uh, fans engaging with a text? Um, I don't have much experience of of comic cons or um, I'm not particularly interested in fan fiction, but what I have really enjoyed has been going on the location tours and talking to other fans about how they came to the show and what they liked about it. And um, and also i was very lucky on the both on the icelandic location tour i went on and on one of the irish ones to have uh the tour led by an extra who had really been in a lot of the show and had the most amazing stories to tell of behind the scenes action and uh, how, how various things really worked or didn't work in in some cases and so I kind of treasure some of the anecdotes that I learned from that. And so did the other fans as well, um, particularly Adrian, who is uh, Davos's body double, who led the tour, the first tour I went on in Ireland, was the just the funniest man and had such a hilarious story about Balon's funeral that uh, I, I'll remember it to my dying day. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Fantastic. Okay, well, I, I think we, we are sort of pretty much run out of time. Um, but thank you so much, Caroline, for uh, giving us your time and sharing your expertise and your knowledge and your enthusiasm um, about Game of Thrones. And I, I can't recommend All Men Must Die enough. Um, for anyone 
remotely interested in Game of Thrones. I think it's a must buy. Yes, exactly. I'm holding my copy up to the webcam as well, but you can't see me. Um, so do do check the book out and also look into Winter is Coming, which is a bit easier if you haven't seen all the show because it, it flags up the spoilers. So perhaps start off with Winter is Coming, but All Men Must Die is the must read uh, if you've seen all the show. Um, and it, it's really helped me sort of understand the show in a new way. Uh, and, and definitely see past the ending, just see, see the whole thing as one package. So it's been really, really um, useful for me um, and, uh, and and for you as well, Ashley, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, so thank you so much, Caroline. Well, thank, thank you. you so much for the invitation. It's been really interesting to talk to you both and uh, the questions from the audience too. And I uh, hope um, we'll hear more from you about the world of Essos, if not Game of Thrones. We'll have to see what the spin-offs are like. Indeed. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> Fantastic. OK, great. Well, thank you, everyone. And um, thanks for um, pursuing uh, with us uh, as we experience some technical problems. Um, there is um, uh, an, another author chat coming up. Uh, in April um, with Dr. Holly Ordway, uh, author of Tolkien's Modern Reading. So check out the website signumu.org um, for details on that. That's on April the 7th. Until then, uh, thank you once again, Caroline, and uh, stay safe, everyone. Keep reading, keep watching, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye.